technology has not really been something that I've seen embraced inside the field. And then we were forced into the innovation. And I think that's what COVID did. It forced innovation in fields that were not ready maybe to embrace them. I think it's been revolutionary. Our teens and adolescents, our children are really in a crisis for lots of reasons. And telehealth and telepsychiatry has possibly opened up a way for them to reach out and get assistance in a way that they may not have been able to. And quite frankly, could be life-saving. Welcome to A Virtual View, where we talk about telehealth, healthcare, and everything in between. Thanks for tuning into this collaborative episode of the Virtual View and the Telehealth Unmuted podcast today. I am joined by Telehealth Unmuted's host, Kara, and we're excited to have Marnie Stallman with us today, who works with the Florida Mental Health Association, who's going to just tell us a little bit more about herself as well as some of her work within the virtual care space. So Marnie, for our audience who may not be familiar with you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to be with both of you and also with the listeners to share a little bit about who I am, what we do here at the Mental Health Association, and explore some important topics related to mental health. My background is as a clinical psychologist. I've been in the field now for probably close to 40 years primarily working within the marriage and family, children and adolescent sector, and had some time in clinical private practice. I've been uh, the CEO and uh, president of a psychiatric hospital here in Central Florida at one time for children and adolescents. And I'm really excited now to be the president and CEO of the Mental Health Association of Central Florida. For those of the listeners not familiar with MHACF, we are the oldest nonprofit here in Central Florida. We just celebrated our 76th anniversary. We were founded back in the 1940s with the primary mission and goal to be an advocate for individuals with acute mental illnesses along with their families. For those of the listeners that are familiar with NAMI, the National Association for the Mentally Ill, that was really formed in the late 90s mid-90s, really, to be an advocacy group. But back in the 1940s, if you were an individual diagnosed with even a moderate chronic mental illness, more than likely you were institutionalized. There was not a lot of treatment back in that time. Medications weren't very sophisticated. Talk therapies were still considered cutting edge. And the whole field of psychology and psychiatry was relatively very young. And so unfortunately, quite a number of people who by today's standards would be considered an individual maybe dealing with a depressive episode or an acute anxiety disorder or something like that would find themselves in a commitment situation. And the Mental Health Association, not just in Central Florida, but across the country, because there are other mental health associations that sprang up as a result of that, really worked to free the chain, so to speak. And so the the symbol for the mental health associations is a bell, which was actually created as a symbol in real life from the chains and shackles that people were institutionalized and bound in, and they were melted down symbolically to form that bell. Today, the National Mental Health Association is Mental Health America, which I'm sure many listeners are familiar with. They're quite an advocate working across the country and internationally on really important issues related to advocacy and destigmatizing the work that needs to be taken around mental health. 
over the years, the mental health association here in Central Florida has evolved, as you can imagine. And so we are not just an advocacy organization, but we also provide direct mental health counseling on an outpatient basis, primarily to individuals without health insurance. Florida has the infamy of being just one of 12 states in the United States that did not do Medicaid expansion. And as a result of that, really important services related to mental health and behavioral care for the uninsured have not been able to be delivered. And so our Outlook Clinic is one of the few in the state of Florida that is providing at no charge outpatient mental health services for individuals over the age of 18 that do not have health insurance. And we're supported by grants and philanthropies and hospital partners here locally to do that work. So we spend a lot of time in our state legislature advocating for some of the changes in laws that we feel are necessary here, as well as bonding together with our brethren across the country on uh, state and national issues, and then working on the delivery of direct care. That's a mouthful. Wow. Really appreciate the comprehensive description that you've given. It really helps us as interviewers, but also our audience. I'm curious to know one has a series of experiences maybe that inspire them to pursue a certain career. So I'm curious to know for you, when did you decide that mental health was a passion of yours? I was very fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, that my mom is a psychotherapist. And so I literally grew up, her practice initially was in our home. She had a home office and she was one of the first individuals here in the state of Florida back in the late seventies, before there was even licensure to work in marriage and family and just watching it, getting dragged along to psychotherapy conferences isn't every high schooler's best idea of fun with their parent. But I got to meet some really amazing trendsetters, people that are now in textbooks that I got to see in the late 70s, early 80s, before most of them passed in marriage and family therapy. And it was just a kind of natural progression. In other families, if your dad's a doctor or a lawyer or bus driver or whatever, you might want to aspire to say, I want to be like my parents. And so in that instance, but I also saw the impact that was being made from family therapy. And at the time in the early, late seventies, early eighties, family therapy was very new as a modality and a treatment option. Systemic theory or systems theory, as it's called was really a radical approach back then. Back in those days, even saying somebody with an addiction disorder was a ghoul diagnosis was considered really far out. Now, of course, the field embraces that and says, but yes, of course, somebody with an addiction must always most certainly be grappling with at least anxiety or depression and is using the substance use and abuse option as a way to medicate for other things that are going on. But back in those days, as my daughter likes to say, in the old days where we had to have a remote for our television instead of getting up and changing the channel, that's the way that the state of the field was. It's amazing just to see what the progression of the field of mental health has really evolved over the past several decades. And 
Also, just how special it is for you to be able to see even your own mother who has been a part of this process and helped to shape some of that desire. As you said, depending on how you look at it, that's a pro and a con, but it is cool to hear how those experiences you had with a close family member who was doing that work really helped to shape the passion and where you are today. Yeah, it really was something. And other family members have followed suit in one way or another. And my daughter's been very clear that she may be interested, but we'll see. She's only 14. (laughs) so who knows you know it may be generations that continue to to work in this work since you're working specifically within the context of florida what does the prevalence of mental health conditions look like within your state yeah that could be a long conversation as i alluded to florida has really grappled for a very long time on a number of healthcare related issues as it attends to the needs of the uninsured and underinsured we have the infamy of dropping in the last two years from 48th to 49th in the country for the amount of money that we spend per resident here in our state on mental health and the funding that goes with it Very unfortunate that in Florida, the funding that comes through for most of the programs that are supported by local governments through the state, there's no recurring dollars. So every year we have to go back and ask. And it's difficult. And it really makes it an obstacle as you try to educate your legislators and local advocates and governments Why is it important to put funding behind mental health? So the state of Florida has been in a bad state for quite a while. The Mental Health Association is part of something called the Florida Mental Health Advocacy Coalition. Those are other organizations across the state, and we band together to really take up the cause, one of which is a drumbeat that we've been drumming now since 2013 and the Affordable Care Act, which is the expansion of Medicaid. Because by doing that, it really will help to encompass and bring into the fold for Medicaid benefits a portion of our population that is just completely left out by disparity because of socioeconomic issues that are sometimes not in their control. And we need to see that. And we certainly know that and have seen that in communities of disparities of color, of poverty, they are most often the most afflicted with issues of substance abuse and use and disorders and mental health conditions that go untreated. Most recently, I was in a conference with some colleagues here in Florida, and we were discussing, and someone quoted a statistic that I found just to be uncomprehensible, which was that in a community of color, an African-American male, it could take as long as 11 years from the point of diagnosis to treatment because of access to care issues that we have here. We just don't have enough. And Obviously, with the COVID pandemic and coming out of the recovery, we've seen international and national focus on the fact that mental health is part of your physical health and that this previous stigma about the separation of the two really is being closed. As we see more celebrities, people of note, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, Selena Gomez, influencers who have come forward. But until we see members of our business communities that are here local running organizations that are recognized, it will still seem far away that celebrity has disclosed that they have are grappling with a mental health condition. What we need to see and have it be demonstrated that there are 
people walking right among us in our workplace, in our communities, in our churches and synagogues, in our community organizations, you're really grappling with everyday issues. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something that is chronic, but it can certainly be acute. And it's okay to talk about that. I long for the day that we can openly talk about being on medication for mental health disorders the same way we say I take high blood pressure meds. Nobody thinks twice about the fact that you might eat too much salt on a daily basis or drink too much Coke and therefore have to modulate your blood pressure. But if you were to say I take Welbutrin or Zoloft, then people start to say, oh, well, you know, and I don't know how that goes back to your original question about the state of Florida, but we're trying every day here to raise the awareness and the level of funding that comes in so that more and more people can get their treatment and get on a road to recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up a lot of really interesting points here. And I think you're absolutely right that part of the destigmatization that needs to happen is to have people that are public facing, maybe high profile individuals that are respected in the community to be vulnerable and to share, if applicable, their mental health struggles. Because I think that when people at the quote unquote top are able to do that, it permits everyone else in the community to follow suit and also share. So I think that's really interesting. And I also think it could be applied to really anything, even in the working world, having people in leadership or having people that you aspire to be like or inspired by to have them set that example. Over the last several years, there's been a huge focus on something called DENI, equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. How are workplaces, community organizations, communities really embracing? The people that are different, the people that look different, sound different, come from different backgrounds, and how do we integrate them so that there's this wholeness and equity and inclusion? But interestingly enough, we have seen some of that work. And again, Florida may not be at the cutting edge of DE&I. Certainly, we've seen some issues that they've had here in the last several months recently. But we see it across the board for the most part. But do we see it with people with disabilities? Do we see it with people that come forward and say that they have a mental health disorder? Not very often. We did have something really interesting happen here just this week. We have an Amazon fulfillment center that's pretty central to the Central Florida region. And we got a call from Amazon saying, hey, we're reaching out because we just want you to know that if individuals with mental health conditions or diagnoses that are looking for work, we're hiring. And that was really a monumental shift right? We've seen individual organizations like Google and Amazon reach out to the autistic or autism community, to the deaf community, to the blind community, but never reaching out to specifically say we're hiring people with mental health conditions who are just as capable and able-bodied. As long as they're on the medications that have been prescribed or they're involved in a therapeutic relationship or they're staying stable within a peer recovery option, which is certainly a movement that's grown, they're very functional. They can do the work. They're smart. They're energetic. They're artistic. They're happy. They're talented. They're all the things that, you know, everybody else is. And so that was an interesting conversation. But it is also of note that when we talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity, across lots of different categories. How often do we get to say, or 
have that conversation around mental health and individuals. With- yeah, I love that. And as somebody growing up with a sister with Down syndrome, it's really interesting to see that same theme in employing people, special needs and Down syndrome specifically. A lot of nonprofits have really popped up in the last couple of years that make that their central focus, having professional development, job training, and opportunities to make an income. So I really love that. And I think it's super, super important, like you said, not only to make it acceptable if you have depression, but to say like, you're not any less of a person for that. And we would love to have you working within our organization. I think that provides a level of empowerment and acceptance that people so desperately need, especially... Yeah, yeah, I would say if we had more of that, we would have a less pres- prevalence of suicide attempts and completions. Because yeah. it really, when someone is getting to that point of an attempt or unfortunately a completion, it's because they've reached that point of despair. It's because they've reached that point of not feeling included, of not feeling like there's a resource or an alternative that will help them feel differently. And that's really un- unfortunate and can be changed. Yeah, it can be. Absolutely. I think what you described is a really effective way to do that and also making it normalized in general to be able to talk about this. And because so many people are on medication, we just don't vocalize it. So you feel so alone. (laughs) And I liken it back to before Betty Ford came forward in the 1970s with breast cancer, women didn't talk about breast cancer. It was taboo. And even the prevalence of getting mammograms and having a breast care check and doing it on an annual basis was really something that was unheard of. And it took somebody like Betty Ford in the presence as the First Lady of the United States to come forward and talk openly about her breast care and her journey on cancer. Today, both my mom, my sister, and my sister-in-law are double bisectomies. They're, thank God, okay. And two of them, of the three, have had reconstructive surgery. My sister said, a boob is what you call your husband when you're mad at him. So (laughs) think of the normalization before. In 1972, we couldn't talk about a woman's breast care and what breast cancer was about. And now we joke about it and what's a boob. And we have the Susan Komen Foundation and we have the Pink Brigade. And it's just out to save women's lives. And if we could somehow come up with that same kind of mentality about openly and freely talking without the stigma about mental health, think of the lives that could be saved there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fantastic example, too, which also I indicates that We absolutely can do the same when it comes to mental health, but it will take the collaboration and buy-in of the community in order for it to happen. I do want to make sure we ask about the social determinants of health, which you did touch on in your earlier response about mental health conditions facing Florida and the populations you serve. Are there specific social determinants of health that you see very commonly in the region that you serve? Are there ones that are a specific focus right now in your practice? Any Anything that comes to mind would be, I think, relevant. So social determinants of health are really characterized as conditions that people are born into, grow into, live, work, age. But all of these factors can strongly influence the health outcomes of any person. And What we've really experienced here, not just in Central Florida, but when I talk to colleagues across the country, the COVID-19 pandemic 
really ripped the Band-Aid off of where we saw some really strong disparity and where these most common social determinants of health really were deeply entrenched into the health and social and economic inequities that exist here in the United States. The most prevalent one I think that most people are aware of, especially coming out of the pandemic that was the most visible, was food. And what we saw where people were lining up to try to get food or have food and had never previously been donors to food harvest banks. We still see Feeding America to this day. We're still having food giveaways here. Access to healthcare, I think, is another really critical one, particularly in communities of color where you're not going to see an emergency department or doctor's offices or dentist's office. Really, dental care is a really big one. And then housing. Orlando is now considered one of the top five most expensive places to live in the United States. It's nearly impossible to get housing here. You have to have an income of over fifty or $60,000 to afford a one or two bedroom apartment. And we have a big economy here in most of Central Florida and also a low-wage tourism-based economy and hospitality. Mm. So those are not individuals that are typically making more than 15 or $16 an hour. In recent years, we've seen exposés in the front pages of our paper where we've had hospitality, tourism, theme park workers going to work every day and they live in their car. Wow. So when we talk about really the social determinants of health and how they affect everyone's mental health being, I think that can't exclude any of the social factors when we talk about health and well-being. The most recent one that I came into contact had to do with climate disparity or climate discrimination, that there are regions in different states and areas of the United States where people are more subjected based on poverty and race to climate conditions that are adverse to their health conditions than people with wealth and stature. So that's a very new one, I think, that has been added to the social determinants of health is climate and how we build buildings, where we situate them. I think is really important here in central Florida and in a lot of communities across the South. We have a street in our downtown that's called Division Street. The reason for that was the Division Street that divided the African-American community from the white communities. And those streets are still here. They're still named. And we see that's typically where highways go through. Yeah. That's where large sports stadiums are built because the lands are cheaper. And so there's just a lot to say there. But we certainly have seen it, particularly after COVID, where there was a loss of income, job loss, and now with the economy in a state of inflation and some families not being able to get back to where they were, we're seeing a lot more in our clinics. That was a great overview of some of the things that individuals in your particular community face. And one of the things that we talk about in this podcast is despite some of these social determinants of health and other equity barriers that these individuals may face, what are some ways that your organization has utilized digital health solutions like to help bridge the gap that some of these patients may face when it comes to seeking out mental health care? 
You know, it was really remarkable, and I don't think we're alone here in the responses that we've seen, and you've seen the rise of telehealth medicine, not just in psychiatry and mental health, but across the field. It was something that was fairly intact pre-COVID in Florida. We really were a little bit behind the times legislatively about how telehealth could be utilized. It reimbursed for, so people were a little bit more hesitant. And then, of course, when we went into lockdown, there really wasn't much of an alternative. For individual communities that had not been able to access in the category of mental health, we saw an enormous jump. And what now becomes a new social determinant barrier is access to broadband. So it used to be access to transportation would be a big delimitator for somebody following through on treat because we don't have a rapid transit system here in central Florida. We don't have a light rail that's effective and utilized. And we have a transportation network on our roads that is just a mess. So when we would talk to individuals and do community roundtables, we would see our access to medical care was inhibited by the lack of transportation option. Telehealth now puts you on an information highway and not a regular highway. And so we saw a huge jump in the number of individuals in our Outlook clinic that were coming to the clinic and keeping their appointment. One of the things that practices look at is of their patients, what is the confirmation rate? How often do patients cancel their appointment? How compliant are they? And compliance in mental health treatment is really important, right? To be consistent. We're at about an 89% compliance with our telehealth patients, which is really remarkable. And that's caused celebration, but also now opened up questions about how to deliver broadband into communities that, again, have been left out. Most everybody has a cell phone, but do they have a data plan that will allow them to sit on a 30-minute or 40-minute appointment? And how do we bring that? The Biden administration has really tried to open that up with funding for through the American Rescue Plan for individuals to get a supplement for their broadband and also even digital equipment. But we have to get that word out. I'm curious to know... What do you think has been the impact of digital health solutions for patients with mental health conditions? How has, I guess, telehealth, telemedicine impacted your line of work? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a statement and I'll preface it and then come back. I think it's been revolutionary. No less than revolutionary. That said, I will tell you, I myself was not an early adopter. So as has already been noted, I've been doing this since the 70s, where you had to get up to change the channel on your television. <laughs> so technology has not really been something that I've seen embraced inside the field. But as the evolution of that has come around, and I was always trained old school that for a therapeutic relationship to be successful, it requires a bond between the therapist and the client, the patient. And that, I was always suspect, how's that going to happen in a digital, virtual space? I'd... So many cues come in a therapeutic relationship for how someone is acting, reacting, how they're sitting, how they've mapped themselves in the room. There's lots of verbal and vocal cues to take up. And I was really not an early adopter, I have to tell you. And then when we were forced into the innovation, and I think that's part of what COVID did unquestionably was wreak havoc on our emotional and physical senses of safety and security. But it also forced innovation in fields that were not ready maybe to embrace them 
where we're just starting to. And I think psychiatry and mental health or behavioral health care treatment was one of, and the need for the innovation, I think, forced us to embrace something that probably would have taken many more years to evolve and to the way that it has. Today, now, two years later, I go back to the word that I think it's been revolutionary. I think what it's opened up is the opportunity for people to access mental health services in a way that may they may previously have not been affordable or location-wise. It's taken away barriers and boundaries of geography. And provided that you're with a good telehealth provider that you've done your homework with, I think that the therapeutic relationship is just as informative and just as impactful as if it were to be a face-to-face. And I think it's opened up the opportunity to remove the barrier of exclusion. I also think that it's taken away a little bit of the hesitancy Mm -hmm. that people had about going face to see a therapist. While you're still having an intimate interaction, there is something to be said for it's still flat and in this virtual space. You can cut your camera if you want to. If you've got some social inhibitions and phobias about anxieties being seen before you can be coaxed out to have that, that's removed some of those intimacy barriers that may have prohibited people in the past from seeking out care. And then the affordability of it. As I said, Florida has been a little bit behind the times about how to legislatively allow for Medicaid and Medicare to pick up billing for telehealth and private health insurance companies to be able to have their providers bill for telehealth services. Other states have certainly been more progressive and have set the standard and led the way on that regard. But it's also opened up a level of affordability, I think, again, that may have been prohibitive for people looking for a one-on-one. That's not to say that I've given up on one-on-one. I'm still old school in that regard. But I certainly can't dismiss the efficacy of what telehealth has been able to do. I did see a study about an increase in teenagers getting mental health care. Previously, they might have been too intimidated to go for an in-person visit or maybe ashamed or whatever it might have been back to the stigmatization. But something about being able to jump on a video call is more approachable and easier for them to do. Yeah, especially with adolescents, provided that they have the sign-off, obviously, parent or guardian. But there's some startling and statistics that are floating now post-COVID. One I just was talking about today was a colleague, an American teenager, takes their life with a gun every seven hours yeah. on average. Gun violence and now is the number one cause of death of children and adolescents in the United States. And that's not homicide gun violence. That's a mixture of self-inflicted yeah. or self-intended gun violence. Not wow. to mention the statistics. 50% of teenagers, by the time that they're in 12th grade, are going to have tried an illicit drug. Our teens and adolescents, our children are really in a crisis for lots of reasons. And telehealth and telepsychiatry has possibly opened up a way for them to reach out and get assistance in a way that they may not have been able to. And quite frankly, could be life-saving. Yeah. So I think one of the things that sticks out with what you're saying there is it's important to be able to have options. Yeah. So whatever modality that is the most comfortable for that patient to want to seek out help, being able to have those different options available. Because, you know, we're seeing with a lot of telehealth programs that one of the biggest drivers is patient choice. Yep. 
And so being able to provide patient choice, and I think especially when it comes to mental health treatment, when perhaps, as you mentioned, individuals may be intimidated to have an in-person appointment, and so they want to have some of that separation. Or you may have someone on the flip side that being in a virtual encounter feels less personal and they want to be in person. But really having the opportunity to have options for both is going to improve the outcomes that individuals can have. Whatever modality is going to work for them, they can pursue that. Yeah, and I want to point out, too, something that we may not have highlighted enough or at all really in this conversation is within the treatment modalities and options there, I want to make sure that we make a deposit and recognize the peer recovery space movement and how important that is in attributing and contributing to the recovery of individuals who are in an acute crisis or dealing with a chronic mental illness. Because peer-to-peer, and this is something developing here in Florida where we're getting certifications for peer-to-peer specialists, having somebody that's had a lived experience that's similar to yours and having a place to reposit those experiences and share them and collide with them and see people that are like you in your experiences or have been similar in your journey is a very effective method now. And just as I mentioned earlier on in the the 70s and 80s, when people were poo-pooing kind of the, oh, dual diagnosis, there's no such thing. Your recovery really is at that same kind of juncture right now over the last couple of years where it's emerging out of its own cocoon into the butterfly that it should and needs to be. And is it a very effective modality when talking about choice of who to access for care and where to go? And so for the listeners, there's a lot of peer recovery options that are out across the country. Florida is this in this area has been leading, surprisingly, but that's because the peers have stepped forward. The people that have been chronically dealing with this for their lifetimes or have family members that have been chronically dealing with this as their lifetime. And that's where we see organizations like NAMI, Mental Health America, other peer-led groups, really important to include them. The peer recovery space is really important when it comes to mental health. Being able to have individuals who understand what you're going through, have lived through it themselves. And I've seen a lot of emerging resources specific to that, especially when it comes to substance use and addiction, because no one person facing that mental health condition looks exactly the same. But being able to have someone who understands what you're going through can be a huge benefit. So what's interesting is we talk about the cocoon unwrapping on the peer recovery space movement would make it appear as if this is something that's relatively new. But it's interesting, Cameron, that you pointed out in the addiction space, AA has been around for a very long time. And when you look at the model of how AA operates or Al-Anon, it's a peer-to-peer space. So it's not that peer-to-peer recovery and the space movement itself has just been an epiphany and so everybody's, hey, we should have peers talk to each other. Gen AA is 87 years old. It was founded in 1926. (laughs) It's been here a long time. It's just that we've evolved now to see it beyond the addiction space into the chronic behavioral health and mental health space as well that people with chronic mental health conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or schizoaffective, people that are 
as I said, chronically mentally ill with a diagnosis that needs to be treated and monitored so that they stay out of crisis, having those peer relationships is really important. And it's interesting to see the little full circle moment, right? When we think of peer relationships are one thing and then also big picture thinking about how community and how social acceptance and conversations drive change and help people, especially in the realm of mental health. You have such an extensive background and career journey and you've led multiple organizations and you are also on the clinical side too, treating people and have been. I'm curious to know, like, what advice would you give to a young professional who is interested in pursuing a career in mental health and potentially doing it digitally as well? What have you learned? Do you have any big insight or takeaway that you would want to impart? We need people coming into the field desperately. We have lots of people being recruited by business schools and by trade schools and different things like that. but. Part of the difficulty is that as a career path, it's not maybe the most financially rewarding path to take, whereas it is emotionally a really rewarding path to take. And we need a lot more people coming into the field, particularly people that are representative of the communities that we just spent some time talking about, because effective treatment needs to be delivered by people that look like the people that they're treating. And that's been one of the concerns and issues that we've seen in some of our communities of disparities is that they don't have the same lived experiences, the therapists or the professionals. They'll try to have the empathy and understanding, but they can't know it. And it's something that I really think is missing in the field and has been for a very long time. What would I say to inspire somebody to come into the field? It can save a life. You can save a life. I once had a reporter say to me, with the amount of volume that you have at your clinics, how do you manage it every day? And I said, I don't look at the people that come to our clinics as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I look at them as one plus one till I get to ten. And that's how you have to face the day every day. You just have to go for the one and make the difference in the one and and move to the next day. Because if you don't do it that way, it can be overwhelming and you can just feel despair. But you can do a difference with one. And I think that's when we talk about and we speak to young people that are going into the medical or helping professions, why they're going to med school or different kinds of opportunities within the healthcare field, that's what's motivating them. But we seem to not be able to do it very effectively with getting more and more people to go into the mental health behavioral space. And I think that's also where telehealth has helped because it's allowed for some of the disparity in workforce to be made up, especially in more rural areas. You don't have to worry that you don't have a, a psychiatrist in a rural area. You can dial in and find someone that might be a couple hundred miles away, but they're close. I wish I had that magic answer about how to entice more people to choose it as a field, as a calling, as a vocation. And that's how I view it. I don't say that when I speak to my family, I'm not getting up to go to my job. I'm getting up to go to my, do my work. Love that. And I think 
especially true in helping professions, like you said, be focusing on treating the one and really taking care of yourself in the process so that you avoid that burnout and avoid that fatigue and overwhelm. I think that can also be applied in any career. I mean, I think it's something that They've luckily started talking about a lot more, having those boundaries and setting those boundaries and just really being honest with yourself in order to be productive, but also not at the expense of your own mental health. And But I still think we have ways to go when we look at career and work-life culture. Yep. And my training when I was coming up, and I'm sure it's still this way now, if you're going to be in a direct clinical feel where you're doing direct patient care, you need to be in therapy yourself. There's no way that transference isn't going to happen. There's no way that projection is not going to happen. You're a human being. You're going to absorb what's happening. And as you pointed out, you're no good to anybody if your own mental health is precarious, right? So you want to safeguard that. You want to do things that are self-care related and nurturing so that you can be the helper in return. But it's kind of this analogy I tell people all the time. But we get on a plane and we fly. After the doors close and the flight attendants are standing up and the gate is being pushed back and the pilot's getting to the runway, what happens next? The stewardess flight attendant stands up and they start going through the safety precautions. They point out where the exits are in case you have to jump out of the plane on a tube or a raft. And then they say what? In the event of an emergency and air pressure deep in the cabin being reduced, air masks will automatically drop from your seat above. What's the next thing they tell you to do after they drop? Put the mask on before you put it on the person next to you. And the reason for that Absolutely. is if you're not breathing, then you're not going to be much help to the person next to you. And that's the same kind of thing when I talk to and in supervision with other clinical team members and staffers that I've worked with and therapists in the field that I was taught very early on in my own clinical training, put your mask on first because you're of no use to somebody if you're not breathing. And that really means self-care and making and taking care of yourself because it can be very hard. And there are times that you have to step back and there are times that you have to impose limits and say, this is not something that's healthy for me to be involved in that this is a toxic relationship with the client or the patient may exceed the boundaries of what you may be able to help as caregivers as helpers as clinicians we like to think we can help everybody that's not true it isn't we're not a one-size-fits-all we have to know what our limits are we have to know what our capacity is we have to know where our strengths and opportunities lie and also be honest about that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when we're in an era of caregivers really experiencing a lot of burnout because there's so much need out there. There's got to be a balance of making sure that you take care of yourself despite some of the other things that are going on. Marnie, I want to thank you so much for just taking your time to come and lend your expertise on this collaborative episode with the Virtual View and Telehealth Unmuted. Marnie, we really appreciate it. We hope to talk to you again sometime soon on the podcast, but really want to just thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. 
Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.